1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Nick C, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Alexander Morrison about his new book, The Russian Conquest of Central Asia, a study in, in imperial expansion, 1814 to 1914, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. For those of you who may not know, Professor, uh, sorry, Dr. Morrison is a fellow and tutor in history at the New College at Oxford. He was previously a history, a uh, professor of history at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan, and before that, a lecturer in imperial history at the University of Liverpool. He's the author of numerous articles on Russian imperial rule, and he also has his first monograph, Russian Rule in Samarkand, eighteen sixty eight to nineteen ten. A Comparison with British India, published in 2008 by Oxford University Press. Dr. Morrison, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, Nick. And and we're very excited. Um, First of all, I wanted to congratulate you on the publication of this very impressive book, um, which I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you about today. Um, But before we begin that discussion, um, I was hoping you could share a little bit with our listeners uh about your um academic background how how did you become interested in russian history and specifically in the russian conquests of central asia
2: oh. um so i'm afraid this this um involves a certain amount of um, autobiography um uh i had had an interest in russia in part because of my family background my father was a um, a journalist, he was a foreign correspondent for Reuters, um, who specialised in Russia, uh, and um, he was at one point the Reuters bureau chief in Moscow, so I spent some of my early childhood there, um, and he and my mother encouraged me to learn Russian when I was at school, um, and um, I did quite a lot of Russian history as an undergraduate um, here at Oxford um, as well. Um, but I also had a great passion for uh, the history of South Asia, for Indian history, um, which um, really arose because I spent a year um, uh, Teaching uh, and travelling in India between school and university. Um, so initially, really, my, my training was actually as a South Asian historian. That was the the area I was was most interested in, and that was what I wrote my my undergraduate and my master's theses um, in. Um, but at a certain point, I thought, well, you know, having spent so much time and effort um, learning Russian, um, I really ought to try to make um, <laughs> more use of it. So when it came to choosing a doctoral topic, I thought, okay, well, I'm interested in Uh, I'm interested in in European imperialism. I've looked at that a lot in the South Asian context, the British Empire in India. Um, uh, If we look at the Russian Empire, well, clearly its most colonial periphery is Central Asia, and maybe there are parallels then between um, how the Russians ruled in Central Asia, how the British ruled in India. So that was the topic of my doctoral thesis and of my my first book. Um, And um, since then, really, I've sort of plunged, I guess, more deeply into looking at different aspects of, um, of Russian um, uh, colonial rule in Central Asia. I've published articles on on Russian Orientalism. I've written quite a lot now about Russian settler colonialism in the region, the migration of, of peasants there. Um, but all the while, over the last, well, 10 years now, I've been working on this, this, this book, Um, to try to explain um, something which I thought was not properly explained in the existing historiography, which was how did the Russians come to conquer Central Asia in the first place. And that's taken me down a number of different um, paths. Military history is one. I kind of became a a military historian almost by accident as a result of of, of doing this. Um, I've tried to improve my knowledge of Central Asian languages, principally um, Persian, um, so that I could give a, a more balanced perspective on this process. Um, and of course, it was a project on a much larger scale than my, my first book, which really looked at just one province in, in Russian Central Asia. I found myself sort of looking at uh, the whole of this, this vast region over a period of, of, of about 100 years. Um,
1: Great. And, and that actually is a perfect way to lead into my first question, um, which is, you know, I, I kind of want you to set the stage here because it's very clear to me when I was reading that you're writing against what you see as several dominant themes that have kind of existed in the English language historiography, or perhaps not only the English language historiography, um, Russian as well. Um, but, but you seem to think that there was uh, a fundamental misunderstanding of, of what motivated uh, the conquest. So you talk about um, beliefs in kind of an economic motive for expansion, um, you talk about the great game. you talk about this kind of this this trope of conquest by accident or by disobedience on the ground. Um, I was hoping you could share with us a little bit about what are these themes, why are they so dominant in the literature up to this point? and, and how do you sh- how did you shape your work in order to um, debunk some of these themes, some of these explanations, or move entirely past them?
2: Yes, um, of course. So, um, I mean, economic theories of imperial expansion have a long and and distinguished pedigree in terms of understanding um, actually primarily British imperial expansion. That's where these these theories are most um, highly developed. and in a sense, they're, they're often the sort of default option for trying to explain how and why European empires expanded when they did. You know, kind of the 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 money motive, a uh, desire for profit, a desire to expand trade, a desire to secure valuable raw materials. I mean, these are often seen as being the sort of bread and butter. Of um, uh, of understanding imperialism but we actually know from the British case, you know, this is a a debate that's unfolded in the historiography of the British Empire for for, for certainly for more than 50, actually really for more than 100 years now, um, that you can't actually reduce um, the even British um, imperial expansion simply to a sort of a, a profit motive or to economic um, motivations. Uh, and the British, I think it's fair to say, were a lot more interested in that bottom line than, than, than the Russians were. Their, their ruling elite had a much larger sort of commercial and mercantile element than the, um, than the Russian sort of military aristocratic elite did. Um, but even there, we see, you know, numerous instances of um, imperial expansion. The British case that just didn't really make very much economic sense. Uh, the annexation of Sudan, for instance, would be one, one classic example. Um, so I guess I was sceptical from the from the outset that, um, you know, the whole of this this process could be explained on the basis of. You know, somebody sitting in St. Petersburg and making kind of rational calculations of profit and loss um, uh, in regard to, to Central Asia, um, even more so when, in fact, the the dominant interpretation, which originates um, in Soviet historiography, but was also quite has been quite widely parroted in in English language scholarship, uh, is that um, you have this class of um, uh, wealthy bourgeoisie um, in Russia in the eighteen sixties um basically the representatives of the cotton textile interest interest the, the moscow textile mills and they are pulling strings behind the scenes to get the uh, um, the Russian military um, and um, sort of establishment of the Russian state to conquer Central Asia for them because they want, A, um, a captive market for their uh, industrial goods, and B, they want a secure source of raw cotton, which was something that had become an urgent consideration in the 1860s, um, thanks to the American Civil War, which had created a, a cotton drought um, around the world. And superficially, that does look like quite a plausible argument, particularly you know when we look at the kind of coincidence of dates, uh, you have the American Civil War um, uh, coming at precisely the time when there's a sort of surge um, uh, in uh, the Russian presence in Central Asia when they capture Tashkent um, uh, in 1865. Um, But actually this this derives not really from any analysis of of evidence. Uh, It it derives from uh, unsurprisingly in a way, given that we're talking about Soviet historiography, from pronouncements made by Lenin um, in uh, his Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. Uh, And this work uh, written in 1916 uh, was very heavily reliant on um, uh, a work by uh, a British um, economist um, and liberal um, um, sort of I guess, political activist, John Atkinson Hobson, um, who in his Imperialism Study, published in 1902, um, made the argument that the Boer War um, had been triggered um, by uh, the machinations of uh, a sort of shadowy financial elite. Um, There was actually a strong anti-Semitic streak uh, to Hobson's analysis as well, um, and that they had sort of manipulated the British um, Empire into embarking on this war. Um, uh, to serve their own commercial interests. Uh, Lenin read Hobson, was heavily influenced by him, um, and basically reproduces Hobson's thesis, with some tweaks that I won't go into uh, in that um, in that work. But of course, um, you know, Russia in the 1860s is not Britain in the early 1900s. I mean, even if you believe Hobson's thesis and um, its conspiratorial nature means that very very few historians take it seriously anymore. Um, uh, you can't really get around the very very different nature of both the economy and the kind of ruling uh, elite um, uh, in these these two empires. Um, and um, so it was a necessity for Soviet historians basically to find an economic motivation for the conquest. But actually, um, you know, once you dig a little bit deeper, it's it the whole argument kind of falls to pieces. Um, you know, one aspect of it is uh, um, if we if we take the, the cotton drought as being the sort of trigger, well, we actually have to ask ourselves, you know, what are the Russians doing in the vicinity of Tashkent by 1865? Because at the beginning of the 19th century, the Russian uh, frontier in Central Asia runs about a thousand kilometers to the north of that, um, uh, between Orenburg and Omsk. So something must have happened in the interim. in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, um, that brought them and their forces uh, to within striking distance of Tashkent. And it's kind of hard to see how that can be explained uh, by a cotton drought in the 1860s. Um, Other elements of it, um, uh, you know, the Russians actually already had territory in Transcaucasia that was suitable for growing cotton if they were really that bothered about um, doing this, um, which would have been a lot cheaper and simpler than conquering Central Asia for the purpose. cotton doesn't actually come to be grown widely until the 1890s. So there's this unexplained 30-year gap between the Russians conquering Central Asia and um, it starting to become an important source of cotton for their industry. Um, uh, So really every aspect of that argument is is just deeply implausible. Um, And it's very disappointing to find it reproduced more or less verbatim in a recent sort of very favorably – uh, reviewed uh, work um, uh, by Sven Beckert uh, from Harvard on uh, Empire of Cotton, uh, in which he basically sort of trots out this this Hobson-Lenin um, thesis more or less verbatim, and it's you know and makes some pretty pretty embarrassing um, actually factual errors um, along the way. But that I think is stems from an over reliance on research assistance. Um, so that that economic argument basically you know falls to pieces when you uh, when you look at it more closely, and and You know, what we know about the Russian state and about its ruling elite at the time, you know, that the notion that they would be dancing to the tune of capitalist um, interests is just sort of, you know, just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, The great game thesis is the one that is most popular, I would say, in English language scholarship and particularly in Britain um, because it's. Based upon the idea that um, the conquest of Central Asia is really all about threatening India, it's about threatening the British Empire in India. This is the the one place globally where Russia, who, um, uh, a great power who's very weak at sea, um, can actually place pressure on the British. Um, there is a, a sort of whole um, a whole industry really devoted to churning out um, pamphlets uh, and longer works in the 19th century on the Russian threat to India. It's something the British are. Uh, completely paranoid about um, and um, um, you know it's very sort of satisfying I guess to the the, the British generally do like to kind of see themselves at, uh, at the centre of the story um, no matter what it is uh, and um, there's something I think for them very satisfying about sort of um, um, e- 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 you know seeing all of this this sort of massive geopolitical change as being driven by a desire to sort of get at them in a way um, and, um, you know, again, this is based, it is based on reading of sources, but it's based on reading of reading of British sources or above all of Anglo-Indian sources. They were certainly paranoid about the Russian threat. That doesn't mean that this is what the Russians were actually up to. Uh, and uh, again, the more you look into documentation on the Russian side, the more you see... Well, yes, they do talk about the British. They even sometimes uh, talk about um, the possible advantages to be gained from from threatening them in Central Asia, but usually after the fact, in other words, taking advantage of a a position that's already been established there. But um, most of the time, actually, the Russians are far more preoccupied by their relations with Central Asian powers and Central Asian peoples, Central Asian states. Uh, When they mention the British, it's usually because they're worried that what they're doing might upset them. But they're doing it for very different reasons. Um, They have um, uh, um, very immediate sometimes. Well, I'll go into what I think the reasons are um, um, in in a moment once I finish with (laughs) what I don't think the reasons are. and um, the other problem with this narrative is basically it just leaves Central Asia itself out of the story. You know, the whole Great Game thing is based upon the idea that this is this is great power competition. It's Britain and Russia. You know, Central Asia is just a kind of picturesque backdrop to to, to this sort of story of great power maneuvering. Um, and um, you know, the significance of the. Conquest is not that it made the British and India nervous um, or that it sort of allowed a group of um, um, sort of heavily mustachioed army officers to um, engage in a bit of uh, glamorous self-publicity, because actually a lot of the great game literature is really about that. Um, uh, Its significance is that Central Asia became Russian. It was conquered by Russia. Um, it was ruled then um, by the Russian Empire and then by the USSR for, for 130 years. And it still has a very, very sort of profound uh, political and cultural relationship with Russia. Um, so that has to be the focus. Um, um, you can't sort of waste your time um, sort of worrying about what the British thought was going on. You need to try to find out what was actually happening. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. Uh, and then the disobedience thesis i mean i think it has more merit than some of the others um, there are periods actually when uh, the process of expansion on the frontier does get out of control um, and escapes from st petersburg's grasp but these are relatively limited episodes in fact i would say it's it's really very specifically actually a period in the in the later 1860s after the fall of tashkent um and one reason why I don't think the disobedience thesis can explain the conquests as a whole is um, is actually very, well, it, it touches on another major theme of the book, which is logistics. Um, but it's that launching expeditions in Central Asia was difficult um, and um, required a lot of planning. It required a lot of baggage animals, a theme I think we will return to. Um, Whenever you start reading a file relating to a new expedition uh, or a new conquest, you know the first thing you come across are is correspondence about the budget. <laughs> you know, so somebody is writing from, say, Orenburg or from Omsk or later on from Tashkent and saying, okay, we want to undertake this expedition, and we need a budget because we've got to hire the animals to carry supplies, we've got to buy the supplies. Um, you know, there's some uh, there's and, and this has to be authorised at the centre. So. Almost always, then, the paper trail leads right the way up to the top. It leads through the war ministry um, uh, and up to the Tsar, uh, and nothing happens unless the Tsar has approved it. So basically, the the, the idea that this is all happening by accident, um, it, it's, it's an idea I think we should be suspicious of instinctively anyway because it kind of um, exonerates... Um, Russia's ruling class from any kind of responsibility It's quite reminiscent actually of narratives of the sort of accidental British um, expansion in India. This sort of happens uh, uh, because of a power vacuum because because it was not really under control. But in fact, again, the the documentary record shows something quite different. Um, It shows that, in fact, the process is controlled most of the time. There are some exceptions. So I hope that's a reasonable yeah, answer.
1: Absolutely, no, 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 that's a great start. And um, you know, I think it is important because it's it's clear that you're framing your book from this um, sort of as a, as a corrective to to some of these tropes. And I'm just curious. Um, um, I guess I guess I'll ask a, a two part question. One, um, I'm reflecting on what you just said in your answer, which was about. Um, you know, the Russians didn't just end up north of Tashkent in 1865, but this was actually a much more um, well thought out or or kind of longer drawn out process. And so one question I wanted to ask you was about um, the periodization of your book, which you you say that the study, your study in imperial expansion starts in 1814. So why 1814? And um, does this in some way reflect some of the factors that you you think are actually important in the conquests mm-hmm. of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the dates. I mean, all
2: you know, periodizations of books are always a little bit artificial. And in fact, you know, there are there are some elements, aspects of this of what I discuss in the book that go back to the early 18th century. There are places where I look forward to the the, the First World War and the the, the 1916 altering the early Soviet period. Um, so it's partly just the symmetry of 1814-1914, but I do actually think 1814 in particular is a very, very important um, date for explaining why the conquest happened when it did. Um, because 1814 is um, the year that Russia defeats Napoleon. I mean, okay, you know, he comes back for 100 days in 1815 and then gets wiped, uh, sort of mopped up by the, by the British and the Prussians. But... Um, you know the, the the really decisive defeat of napoleon comes in 1814 and it's russia that plays the uh, crucial role so it's when alexander the first marches into paris at the head of his troops and at that point you know nobody can be in any doubt that russia um, is now a great power i mean you could argue that russia has been a great power uh, of a sort at least since the reign of catherine the great um, but her ability to sort of really influence the politics of europe as a whole um, uh, um, it. Dates from then, um, I would say, and not only that, but actually, um, because of France's um, humiliation at this point, um, Austria and Prussia um, have been to sort of some extent relegated to the, the the second rank. The only two global powers at this point are Britain and Russia. Uh, this sort of does help to, to prefigure their the, the, their later rivalry. Um, and that, um, I argue, um, leads to um, a really significant um, shift in the mentalities of Russia's ruling elite. Now, this all might sound a little bit nebulous compared with the, um, um, the you know, the kind of hard certainties of you know, economic motivations for conquest and so on. But, 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 bear with me because I, I hope this will come to make sense. So. Um, when I was looking at the, the the process that led to the the Russians conquering Central Asia, there is a you know there is a chain of causation if you like. There are um, uh, there are military expeditions. There's the construction of fortresses. There's sort of shifts in the frontier, uh, and they happen incrementally and they're connected to each other. And, and each time there is perhaps a particular set of factors that produces it. So. Um, uh, if we take the, the beginning of the active phase of the conquest it, as being in 1839, which is when uh, General Pidovsky, the governor of Orenburg, launches uh, his uh, ill-fated winter expedition um, against Hiva. Uh, um, well, you know, there are um, uh, some clear sort of grievances, long-standing grievances that that, that um, prompt that expedition. One is that um, the Hiva is... Um, uh, a place where Russians are enslaved. So Russians are carried off from the frontiers along the Caspian, the Orenburg line, and they're enslaved in Hiva by, by Kazakh and, and Turkmen raiders, and then they're enslaved in Hiva. Uh, and this is something that Pirovsky considers to be intolerable. Um, another aspect is... Um, Raids on caravans, which are carried out by again by forces supposedly at least and answering to uh, uh, to the Khivan Khan. Um, There's the sort of broader turbulence that the Russians see on their steppe frontier, where, uh, for instance, raiding for livestock is is a sort of constant theme. Where Uh, The Kazakhs over whom they claim sovereignty are also in political relationships with, particularly with Hiva and with Kokand. And they say, no, 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 we can't have this. We need to have our sovereignty properly established. Um, And so certainly, you know, those are the sort of the the factors that lead to the the launching of this this first sort of major attempt to um, um, conquer Central Asia or part of Central Asia. But of course, if we look at the 18th century, all of these factors are present then as well. Um, You know, Hiva um, has been enslaving Russians for a very long time. Um, uh, The frontier has been turbulent for a very long time. Uh, The Kazakhs have been sort of only acknowledging Russian sovereignty when it suits them for a very long time. Um, And indeed, actually, um, if we, you know, the Pukatrov Rebellion of the 1770s, which is a, a steppe rebellion that originates with the Ural Cossacks or the Yaik Cossacks, as they're then known, but it involves Bashkirs, it involves Kazakhs as well. I mean, that comes close to destroying the Russian state. It's a far more serious um uh, sort of uprising, a far more serious source of instability than anything that happens on the steppe in the early 19th century. So it's not really that the situation in Central Asia itself has changed fundamentally. What's changed is the way the Russians react to it. Um, it's what they're prepared to tolerate. Um, and a part of that is also perhaps about um, increased Russian military capabilities as well, though um, um, the technology the Russians are using in the early 19th century is, is basically the same as what they have in the, the late Um, 18th century. It's still muzzle-loading flintlock um, muskets um, and uh, muzzle-loading artillery. I mean, they've not, there isn't a sort of technological breakthrough that sort of suddenly makes Central Asia easier uh, or more feasible to conquer, not least because the main challenges are logistical, and the logistical challenges basically remain the same until the end of the 19th century. so this change in mentalities, I think, is really important, um, and it creates what I call in the book the Napoleonic Generation. So this is a, a group of statesmen who come of age during the struggle against Napoleon and um, Uh, for whom it really sort of um, transforms their understanding of Russia's place in the world. Uh, Perovsky is a a good example of this, Um, um, he fought at Borodino, he's very much a part of that generation. Uh, The foreign secretary at the time, uh, the foreign minister um, Count Nesselrode is another, Uh, the war minister Chernyshoff is another. Um, And um, confronted with what they see as Central Asian insolence in all its different forms, you know, they say, right? We can't tolerate this anymore. How can Russia possibly sort of? Um, how can Russia possibly tolerate uh, uh, this sort of behaviour when she is a great power? When she defeated Napoleon between 1812 and, and 1814? Um, and connected with this is what I call um, a sense of competitive emulation with other imperial powers, and primarily with Britain. So here we might seem to be reverting a bit to the kind of great game narrative, but I, I see this as being a bit different. This is not about the direct competition for territory, for trade, for influence, for kind of material strategic advantage. It's much more about prestige. It's much more about, okay, well, you know, what are the expected forms of behavior if you are a great power? Um, one of the very striking things then um, is in 1835, which is when uh first makes the case that um, the, the needs to be punished, that there needs to be a long-distance uh, expedition to, to um, invade and uh, um, uh, depose um, her Khan. The argument he uses, very interestingly, is, you know, look what the French have done in Algeria. He says, in Algeria, you know, the French suffered a trivial insult, um, um, you know, that the... The pretext that was used for the invasion of Algiers in 1830 was that the French consul had been struck by the day with a fly whisk a few years before. Um, He says, if, you know, if the French are prepared to do this in Algiers, how can we do any less when we look at the insults that Hever has presented to us? Um, And um, uh, the comparator is sometimes France, it's sometimes Britain, but always there's this sense, you know, we're a great power. We want to continue sitting at that top table. Um, great powers do not suffer European great powers, and there's definitely a sense of a, a, a very conscious sense of a European identity behind this, uh, to some extent of a civilising mission as well. Uh, do not tolerate this kind of insolence from their their sort of inferior Asiatic neighbours, and we need to punish it. Um, and that is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not interested, if you like, in in replacing uh, the sort of rather simplistic mechanical explanations for conquest that I'm trying to, 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 to debunk here with, with an equally um, sort of rigid grand narrative um, because I think that understanding each of the different um, episodes of the conquest on its own terms is very important and there are some very important variations between them. But the constant factor is this, this Russian official mind or official attitude um, which is obsessed with imperial prestige. Which does not treat Central Asians as kind of legitimate uh, or equal diplomatic partners, um, which um, will not tolerate what it sees as their insolence, um, and um, which, um, uh, as a result, um, is drawn quite um, inexorably into um, more and more annexations um, uh, by by different degrees. So I hope that that's a, a reasonable. Uh, maybe maybe I've gone a little bit little bit too far from your 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 quite simple question about dates, but. Um, uh,
1: no, that that's a useful um, yeah yeah. It, it just struck me because I think this is um, you know if you asked even uh, a room of experts when the Russian conquest began, I I, I think a few of them would say eighteen fourteen. So I thought this was a really interesting um, and innovative way of, of, of telling a, a bigger story. Um, and I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the Napole this what you call the Napoleonic generation because. Um, this, this is a good segue into my next question, which is about the sources you use. You know, um, I, I was impressed by the amount of archival research and and published documents you were able to, to track down, but I was wondering if you could share with the listeners a little bit about, uh, the sources you use to get at, um, this question of the Napoleonic generation and these, these generals involved in, um, kind of leading the campaigns, but also, um, just more broadly, what was your research like? Where did you go to do this type of research, um, and and give us a timeline of, of about how long this took? Yeah, well, believe it believe it or not, actually, when
2: I first conceived of this project, I thought, you know, oh, I i I might be able to write this without doing too much archival work. <laughs> you know, I thought um, I could, uh, I thought that I could um, um, rely sufficiently on published sources um, and um, perhaps on existing historiography to write write a book that then. I quickly realised that, you know, firstly that was wrong, and secondly that actually, you know, it was the archival work that I was um, was really sort of drawing me on, if you like. It was the discoveries I was making in the archives. My my first. Um, Trip to the, the um, Russian military historical archive in Moscow, which is the single most important repository for this book, um, to, to work on this project was uh, in 2009, um, and I quickly started finding materials that simply were not reconcilable um, with um, you know the, the, the established um, historiography, whether in Russian or in English, actually on on on, on this topic. Um, so I worked a lot in Moscow and the Military Historical Archive. It's a very well-known archive. It's it's huge. It's basically the, the holdings of the old Tsarist Ministry of War. Um, it's not the easiest place to work. Um, not because they uh, not because access is difficult. I never had any difficulties getting a visa or getting permission. I never had. Um, materials withheld from me. Just their, let's just say their working practices are not particularly researcher friendly. <laughs> um, you, you you have to sort of be very very patient and and um, you know wait rather a long time for your materials to come. Um, but um, uh, so that was the most important um, archive. Um, I worked a little bit in St. Petersburg as well in the Russian State Historical Archive that has some um, materials, um, um, uh, some personal fonds of. of uh, of, of Some of the um, characters involved in the um, in the conquest. Um, I did work in provincial archives in Russia, above all in Orenburg and in Omsk, which were the launching posts for the the two prongs of the uh, um, the early part of the conquest um, of the Kazakh steppe. Uh, where I must say, actually, my my reception was a great deal friendlier than it tended to be in Moscow. That this is a this is a phenomenon that um, um, most his, Russian historians will tell you will tell you that people, people, archivists and researchers in provincial archives tend to be much, much nicer to you than those at the center, partly because they're often, they're often very pleased to to find that there are, there are foreign foreign scholars who are, um, uh, are interested in um, um, the history of their region. Um, And then the other, the other archive I suppose I spent the most time in was the um, Kazakh State Archives in Almaty. Um, Again, partly because I felt that the, Um, The conquest of the steppe in particular had been very neglected. Um, A lot of historians seem to assume that the conquest began in 1865 with the the fall of Tashkent, Um, partly because I was living and working in Kazakhstan for for much of that period, so I had quite easy um, access to it, also because uh, it is a very accessible archive. Um, uh, It's somewhere where... um, um, you don't have some of the obstacles you run into in, in some other some other parts of Central Asia. Um, in Tashkent, my access was a bit more limited. I, I mainly worked with um, uh, the fond of um, um, Adrian Serebrnykov, who was a, a Czarist officer who basically compiled a massive. Uh, compilation of documents on the conquest, um, which um, uh, some of which he managed to publish, but the publication ceased in 1915, uh, and um, the unpublished volumes are still sitting in the Tashkent archive. So I was able to work a bit with those. I did some work in Tbilisi um, because the um, conquest of transcaspia of modern Turkmenistan was uh, um, uh, basically organised by the Caucasian Military District, which was uh, centred in Tiflis as it was then called um so uh it it took me over quite a lot of the um my research took me over quite a lot of the former um uh, ussr and uh, and central asia um and um in the end the archival material did prove to be very important particularly for reconstructing um uh these sort of chains of decision making trying to understand how particular decisions to launch expeditions were were made also for educating me in the importance of logistics, which is something I guess we'll, we'll probably talk about in a bit more detail in, in, in a moment. Um, and um, uh, But I did also find, actually, in the course of writing the work that even without access to archives, and of course, you know, these archives have only been accessible to Western scholars since since 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, it should have been possible to write much better histories of the conquest of Central Asia than we had, even on the basis of published sources, because there's actually a huge amount um, of military memoir literature, um, of published documents, um, of uh, also actually publications of local sources in Central Asian languages or in translation. Uh, on the conquest, many of them, you know, many of which appeared a very long time ago, and which have just not really been properly used up till now. Um, so the, the the archival work was certainly very very important, but actually um, I was amazed to find how much had already been published and was was quite easily accessible, It had just not really been being properly used up until that point.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Yeah, thank you. You've you've already touched on um, some of the topics that I I want to um, bring up now. One of them, um, which you just mentioned when you were talking about the uh, the conquest of the steppe, looking much different than other parts of the conquest, is is the question of logistics. And you know, in the introduction, you have um, something of a joke about about the role of camels um, in the conquest, but this is actually quite serious. So. how do camels feature in this in in your story, and what does this tell us about um, um, material uh, history and 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 the role of logistics in shaping the the conquest of Central Asia by the Russian Empire?
2: So yeah, uh, camel. There are a lot of camels in the book, and yes, I I did make a bit of a joke of it in the introduction, um, but. In a way it is it is quite a, a serious serious matter my, my, my education in this came quite early on i was working in the um kazakh state archives in almaty uh, looking at materials from the orenburg frontier commission which was the the basically the, the state body that attempted at least to administer the kazakhs of the, of the junior horde um and there was a big fat file um, which I ordered up uh, from this this fond uh, eight hundred folio one, which was materials relating to the ex- to the dispatch of a punitive expedition to Heba. I thought, ah, okay, great. This is going to be some some, you know, maybe this is going to have blow by blow accounts of the expedition, or it's going to be about you know the decision to launch it, or but no, actually the entire. F- File was made up of correspondence between the Russian authorities and Kazakh Sultans, as is Kazakh Chinggisids, uh, on collecting enough camels for the expedition. Um, it took them 18 months to round up the uh, 10,000 or so camels that they needed uh, to launch the expedition to Hiva. And 10,000 camels was needed you know, to help carry the supplies for a small force of just 5,000 men. So it gives you a sense then of just how much all of this really depends upon animal power. And of course, when you think about it, it's obvious. You know, we, we, we do perhaps sometimes have this uh, this sort of um, knee jerk assumption that you know European imperial expansion in the nineteenth century kind of goes hand in hand with steam power and the railway. And but actually, in most cases, it doesn't. Um, yes, there are some instances where um, uh, steam uh, steamships, um, um, particularly on rivers, are important for certain phases. Uh, But actually, most European imperial expansion predates, you know, the arrival of steam transport. In fact, it it usually, you know, railways are built as a result of conquest and not as part of it, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, And so, of course, you know, without steam um uh, without water transport which of course is also absent from most of central asia how are how else are you going to move stuff around of course you're going to have to use animals and of course that um imposes constraints on even the most sort of technologically advanced army of its day um so the russians might have had uh, as they did have by the time of the Hever expedition in, 18- in the 1830s congreve rockets uh, so sort of you know primitive type of, um, of missile basically, um, but you know to get them where they needed them they still had to carry them on, on camels and of course the Russians themselves did not breed camels so they didn't know how to breed them, they didn't know how to manage them. So this threw them in a relationship of dependence upon the Kazakhs who did breed them or later on also on the Turkmen who breeded them basically, um, uh, nomadic pastoralists uh, who reared camels and that was a dynamic that kind of uh, fascinated me and which kept coming up over and over and over again. That, You know, if they did decide to launch an expedition, uh, if it was a steppe or desert expedition, as most of them were, then, you know, the single most important factor was could they get enough camels together? Could they keep those camels alive for long enough? Um, A huge proportion of the correspondents devoted to this, a huge proportion of the expeditionary budgets are devoted to this. the, uh, and we, we start to see then how um, this is a conquest that actually relied very heavily on specific types of local knowledge within Central Asia as well um, uh, to do with the, the the rearing and the managing of camels, but actually also, um, for instance, you know where where you're able to find water on some of the expeditionary routes, which again was not knowledge the Russians themselves had; it was knowledge that they relied on their Kazakh guides um, for. Um, and um, this gives us a very different perspective, I think, on, on how the conquest um, unfolds. It, it, it touches, I suppose, on elements of environmental history, um, uh, but above all, we get this sense that we, we can't just sort of assume that there's this sort of um, um, uh, technologically sophisticated sort of European juggernaut that is kind of crushing all before it. It's actually a much more... Uh, uh, the, the the, the line between success and failure um, is much, much more tenuous than that, and of course we see that with the failure of Pirovsky's first expedition. It fails because the uh, 10,000 camels all die of cold. And even on successful exp- expeditions, you know the level of mortality amongst the camels is, is enormous. Um, uh, thousands and thousands of them die. Um, but you know, basically because they're being asked to do they're being asked to sort of to do things that would never normally be um, um, demanded of camels who are on a commercial caravan um, so um, and that also, you know, has it has important implications as I mentioned earlier for understanding how the conquest happens because, you know, if you've got a very if you've got to spend eighteen months collecting ten thousand camels, well, that kind of rules out the idea that you know these are expeditions that are launched on the spur of the moment by somebody who, um, you know, by a commander on the spot who is, is hoping to sort of get in uh, um, uh, before his superiors can stop him. Um, It also explains the rather different nature of some of the later campaigns, particularly those that follow the fall of Tashkent, later on also the the invasion of Fergana, where the Russians were operating in in the sedentary zone of Central Asia, so the regions where you have artificial irrigation, um, where they can to some extent live off the land. It completely changes the dynamics of campaigning. Um, where they don't have to sort of uh, collect these these vast numbers of baggage animals where they can actually rely to some extent on the, the local landscape and the local population to supply them with, with, with food. Uh, and it's no coincidence that it's while, while they're campaigning um, uh, in um in just such a region, so towards Hujan, Samarkand, Jizakh uh, in 1866, 1867, 1868, that we really we do see perhaps the one phase of the conquest that that really was um, really was about local commanders kind of escaping from St. Petersburg's control.
1: Um, yeah, and I I really like this approach. Um, you know, talking about the camels has kind of raised a bigger issue here. Um, and, and one that you definitely draw out in the book, which is about the contingency of these various chapters or um, segments of the conquest. And, you know, one thing I really liked about the book is that, um, you know, it, it's actually a series of micro histories. And I think, I think you would agree with that. And I think that you use some of that language in the book. Um, but this is an interesting approach to telling the story of the Russian conquest because you see that, you know, these factors are changing over this roughly 100 years. And and this shapes the way that um, different individuals on the ground do um, continue or, uh, you know, approach a a specific um, part of the conquest. Um, So I was hoping you could just talk a a little bit more about this approach of looking at the conquest as a series of micro histories. um, And, and just, you know, you don't have to go, um, you know, there's obviously a, a lot of material to cover here, but if you could provide some insight into the major stages of the conquest, um, what stands out to you as somebody who's been um, researching this for quite a bit of time? Mm-hmm. So, I
2: mean, I think one of the reasons I decided to, to take that approach was because, um, I mean, there are just so many different variables involved at different stages. Um you have different personalities involved on both the Russian side and the Central Asian side, and they they behave in particular ways. Some are more aggressive, some of them are more timid. You know, some of them have psychological problems of one kind or another. Um, some of them are, um, you know, sadists. I would say, in the case of Skovilev. Um Mikhail and um, you have different environmental factors. So, if we take, for example, the the two prongs of the Russian advance, one of them uh, into the steppe, one of them from Orenburg to the Sea the other one from Omsk uh, down to uh, Semirechye and uh, um, uh, and uh, Yerni, um it's clear that the the different environmental conditions in these two areas may have a huge impact, actually, on the on the um, the way the Russians sort of behave um, and strategize. You know, Simbirskiy has a, has a mild climate. It's got good soil. Um, uh, it's very early on earmarked as a promising sort of location for a settler colony, and it's already becoming one actually by the 1860s, so well before conquest has been completed. Uh, they try to um, create settlements on the Sirdaria as well, but they fail because um, it's a much harsher climate, um, uh, it's much hotter, um, the soil is poorer, um, uh, extensive artificial irrigation is needed to grow anything, It's just it just seems too alien. Uh, to Russian and Cossack settlers. And that has, you know, knock-on implications and the failure to uh, try to make that line of fortresses in the Sirdyria self-sustaining leads the Russians to sort of think about, well, you know, uh, um, perhaps we can can create something more sustainable if we move forward. And this is ultimately what leads them towards um, Tashkent. Um, So uh, other factors, um, uh, um, yes, would be um, you know, the, the to some extent, I suppose changing technologies. Um, so the you know the advent, for instance, of the um, the Berdan rifle, um, which is a breech loader um, and allows sort of much more rapid fire, um, means that um, uh, you know the Rus- Russian forces basically become the 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 conflicts between the Russians and Central Asians become in general even more one-sided than they had been before. Although there are some uh, exceptions to that. Um, you know, so the disadvantage of such an approach, of course, is that you know you do end up just focusing on the specifics of each stage, and um, you perhaps start to lose sight of of overarching explanations. As I say, I've, I've tried to provide that. Both my, my focus on the um, uh, the official mind, or the question of prestige, and certain sort of recurring themes that we we could get throughout the book. But I honestly don't think that there's an alternative if you if you tried to sort of generalize um, um, about any of these these things there would always be you know there would always be exceptions because of the um, uh, because of the very different nature of the conditions in in some areas um, as opposed to others. Um, So uh, I I think also it it helps perhaps to identify you know what are some of the some of the sort of decisive points uh, and they aren't necessarily the ones that we often see in the existing historiography. So, you know, would it have been, can we, imagine, can, we guess, but can we imagine a counterfactual in which the Russians didn't conquer Central Asia or in which perhaps they only conquered part of it? Uh, and I think potentially we can. Um, I don't think there was anything absolutely inevitable about um, uh, the decisions that they took in the 1840s and the 1850s. So, uh, for instance, building fortresses much deeper uh, into the steppe in the 1840s and 1850s um, Those things could have been denied by St. Petersburg, but they weren't. Um, When they're having this debate about what to do about the Siadaria line in the late 1850s, there are actually voices saying, you know, why don't we just abandon this and go back? Why don't we return to the Orenburg line? Because, you know, what's the point of occupying this region? Uh, It's it's costing us a fortune. Uh, It's extremely difficult to maintain any kind of military security. Nobody wants to settle here anyway, so it's useless as a settler economy. Um, what's the point? Let's let's return to Orenburg. But in the end, the decisive argument that, that prevents that from happening is the familiar one of prestige. They say, no, uh, you know, whether whether it was a good idea to conquer this area or not, we're here now. If we give up this territory, it will be humiliation. It will make us look weak in the eyes of our um, uh, Asia, Asian neighbors. It will make us look weak in the eyes of our imperial rivals. And therefore... If we can't stay where we are and if we can't go back, well, then we've got to go on. And This helps to explain the, the, the move on to Tashkent. Um, I think another element that the Russians often don't really um, appreciate, of course, is that not everything, of course, is under their control. So there are going to be um, political decisions that are taken on the other side um, by Central Asian rulers. Um, and above all, actually, I would say there's the effect of the Russian presence on the – Um, political fabric of Central Asian states, which produces some quite, um, um, you know, unpredictable effects. The Russians often complain that, you know, there's a lot of instability on their frontier, that they can't, um, uh, you know, that say the Kivar or Bukhara or Kokand will not sort of settle down and um, uh, uh, be be good neighbors to them. Um, But what they don't appreciate, of course, is that it's their presence very often which is actually generating a lot of this turbulence. Uh, whether because the the defeats that they've inflicted on on the ruling elites of these uh, these states um, have um, deprived them of legitimacy, whether it's because of the proximity of a uh, of a Christian of a non-Muslim power, um, which um, sort of generates religious fervour, um, so that I think is a is a is another thing we need to bear in mind, and it's very reminiscent of the. One of the explanations that the the great imperial historians Robinson and Gallagher gave uh, for understanding European imperial expansion in Africa, which was that, you know, European commercial and political presence often had a very corrosive effect on local political structures, which would then collapse. Um, and uh, this would then sort of prompt um, uh, expansion or interve- further expansion or intervention by, by European powers, but it was often driven then by events on the periphery, um, not by any sort of particular will um, emanating from the centre. Um, so I think that's another another way in which um, the microhistorical approach sort of helps us um, there.
1: Yeah. And as a follow up, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up, um, the, this issue, which I also saw re- reoccurring in, in the different campaigns, um, of, of how Russian, Russian presence, uh, destabilized a lot of these places. And I was curious, I think this would be a good time to talk about, um, the non Russian sources that you use in the book. So, um, definitely I noticed that you're using a lot of Persian language materials, but there are also some uh, Turkic, you know, what today we would call Uzbek, but at that time would have been just called Turkic um, materials from Kokan, from um, mostly from Kokan, but also Bukhara and Kiva. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this shaped, shaped or reshaped your understanding of the conquest.
2: So, I mean, this is, I'd say this is, you know, it's my use of local sources is a lot less comprehensive than my use of Russian sources, and, and the reason for that is quite straightforward. It's that my Persian is not very good, and um, uh, I don't read Chagatai. So for Chagatai language materials, I was reliant on um, on, on friends who, um, um, who helped me at least to sort of check them against what were often uh, not very accurate contemporary Russian um, translations. Um, but nevertheless, I think that incorporating as many of those materials as I could was was very important, um, partly, of course, because, you know, with any, with any historical topic, you want to get as many different perspectives of what was happening as, as possible, but particularly in a colonial context where, you know, there is this, this um, severe imbalance of power um, um, between um, the Russian state and the central states it comes up against and then later on, um, uh, on under the colonial regime as well. Um and what one gets from Central Asian sources um, is, is, is not always exactly what one would expect. So particularly the Chronicles, so um, very, there's some well-known texts like the Tariki Shahruki which is a Persian language history of Kokand uh, written about 1871. Uh, so after Kokand had been uh, severely defeated by Russia and had lost all its steppe territories, but before the Khanate was finally annexed in, in 1876. Um, and... It has some very vivid descriptions of battles against the Russians, um, but what's interesting is that the the moral critique is really not directed against the Russians. It's directed um, against uh, partly against Kokan's own elites and partly more broadly um, against the sort of the, the the Muslim community in Central Asia as a whole for not sort of uniting and coming together to resist the Russian threat. Um, and that that pattern is seen also in um, some of the Bukharan chronicles, the Tarik Salatini in the Risala the of Ahmad Danish. Their main goal is to criticize the Mangit dynasty of Bukhara. It's not to criticize the Russians. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I presented on this at a, at a conference, um, a CSS conference a few years ago, and uh, to an audience of people who, who know Islamic historiography much better than I do. And um, uh, an interesting point they made was that there are very strong parallels with the Islamic historiography of the Mongol conquest. So the Mongols are not presented as moral agents in this literature. Um, they are a kind of Deus ex machina. They are uh, they are the agent of God's wrath uh, on the Muslims for their own moral for their moral failings. And the Russians are presented in a very similar way in these sources. So um, they're not presented as being sort of particularly evil or oppressive. Um, they are described, um, obviously, as, as being unbelievers. But but the the, the, the critique is really aimed against um, perceived sort of corruption or incompetence or lack of solidarity among Central Asia's own uh, Muslim elites, um, which for most of these authors is, is the reason why they, they failed to resist, failed to resist the Russians effectively. Um, Something else that comes across, which I think is important, is that um, you know the Russian perception is that these states are not interested in diplomacy; that they have no conception of how it works; that the only language they understand is violence. And you, you see very clearly from Central Asian side, this was not the case. I suppose we could perhaps um, um, even without that sort of testimony, we could have, we could have assumed that this is more product of Russian prejudices than than of reality. Um, but they make frequent reference to um, uh, attempted diplomatic missions to try to resolve um, the differences with Russia. Um, there are particular kind of local techniques for this, actually, which involve mainly mainly involve the use of sacred lineages who um, have high prestige uh, as the sort of means for conveying messages. Uh, and what becomes abundantly clear then is that the Russians um, are just not really interested in negotiating a lot of the time. Uh, and even if they are, they often uh, just don't. You know, they they are the ones who are actually misreading, um, um, misreading the intentions, and um, um, basically sort of guilty of not taking the not taking the Central Asian states seriously. Basically, not viewing them as as legitimate kind of diplomatic um, interlocutors. Um, and I suppose the final thing that we get from them is that. And here I'm, I'm, I guess I'm running up against the work of uh, Robert Cruz, who's also written about the, the, particularly the fall of Tashkent, is that we do see that you know the Russian conquest is very disruptive to the worldview of um, Central Asia's um, Islamic elites of the ulama. Um, it is not something they don't see as sort of simply a kind of neutral or even broadly positive um, um, experience. Um, it's not that you know, the fact that the Russians already govern uh, Muslims in the in the Volga-Ural region, for instance, actually makes them particularly sensitive to um, uh, these local dynamics. Um, quite the reverse, actually, it's often, the, particularly their previous experiences in the Caucasus, have often sort of ingrained in the minds of many Russian generals the notion that all Muslims are dangerous fanatics. Um, and we so we see then that, yes, this, the advent of, of non-Muslim rule is, is very disruptive. This does not necessarily however, produce violent resistance. In some cases it does. And I think we see that in Bukhara in in, in 1866. And in 1868, there is a a real move towards religious war, towards uh, Hazabat or or Jihad. Um, But actually, in the end, the response is is sort of more quietist. It's um, actually similar to that which you see amongst the the ulama in North India after the um, um, the East India Company conquers it in in 1803, which is... um, you know, provided these new conquerors don't interfere too much in the practice of our religion. Um, given the hopelessness of resisting them, uh, uh, we need to find a way. We need to find a modus vivendi, uh, which is what eventually happens. Um, but that's not to say that um, the initial experience of conquest is not quite um, traumatic, and that is something we get from the local sources.
1: And I want to, I want to take this last uh, topic a little bit further. And in these last couple of questions, think about like kind of the bigger legacy of uh, Russian conquests in Central Asia. Um, and one, one thing that I want to talk about is violence, which um, I think is, is, is present throughout the conquest. Um, but you see these moments, especially I'm thinking about um, in the Kievan campaigns when um, the violence seems to reach a new level. In it. And, and um, you know, um, I, guess, I guess one critique of the Soviet historiography, although there are several in the book, is that um, sometimes the Soviet historiography overlooked um, the kind of violent nature of some of these episodes. Um, they, there was a focus on uh, the, the more, the joining of Central Asia and Russian Empire and, and downplaying it as conquest. Um, but I was hoping you could talk more about about the role of violence in the conquest, and in those episodes where um, we do see um, more exaggerated forms of violence, um, how do we explain this? Yeah. So I, I puzzled over this quite a lot.
2: Um, I mean, in the Tsarist historiography of the conquest, you know, they make no bones about the violence. It's, it's, tends to be the case with, with you know with 19th-century European imperialists, they're, they're not necessarily trying to sort of disguise what's what's going on. And they certainly don't use this language of pre of joining. They talk about Zavoyevanyi of conquest, as in Teretiev's uh, um, um, classic history of the conquest. In the Soviet period, after about the 1930s, that gets sanitized to, yes, you know, the voluntary uniting of Central Asia with Russia and its progressive significance. Uh, the in, in, in Russian, um, and that's really not a satisfactory description. I mean, yes, there are episodes of the conquest which um, are not particularly violent. The, the, the final annexation of the Pamiers is, is one, um, uh, and I think it's fair to say that for much of the earlier periods, so in the eighteen forties and eighteen fifties. Um, the sort of violence the Russians are engaging in is, is in some ways, a rather—it's uh, almost a kind of mirror image of the violence um, that um, is normal of, 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 of um, the violence that you see on the uh, on, on, on the steppe amongst Central Asians. So, a lot of it is, is simply about raiding. It's raiding for livestock and it's raiding for hostages. And the Russians do this, and so do the Kazaks, and so do the Turkmen. Um, there's a kind of common economy of, of, of violence to some extent, and it's not aimed specifically, actually, at um, you know, kind of intimidation necessarily. Um, it has more sort of, um, more material ends um, in a way. Um, but that does, it, it changes and there's a there's a big debate at the moment in, in the sort of field of imperial and colonial history about colonial violence um, and about the nature of it and about indeed whether it does constitute a distinct category of violence. So in other words, is the violence that Europeans inflict on non-Europeans in the process of um, Colonial conquest and later of colonial rule, qualitatively and quantitatively different from the sort of violence that Europeans are inflicting on each other um, in the wars that they fight in the course of the 19th century, and uh, you know, it may make some some enemies within the academy for saying this. I'm actually a bit sceptical um, about the usefulness of colonial violence as a sort of separate category. Um, it's certainly true um, that there are some some sort of notable um, atrocities that are committed um, by um, the the armies basically of all the colonial powers in in, in the course of the nineteenth century. Some of the some of the worst are committed by the French during the um, conquest of Algeria in the eighteen forties. Um, if we look at the sort of the uh, um, the suppression of the Indian Rebellion of eighteen fifty seven by the British again, um, there's some, some horrendous sort of mass uh, violence that's committed there. In the case of the Russian conquest of Central Asia, the, the most notorious episodes are the Yomad the massacre of 1873 and then later the conquest of Fergana in 1876, and above all the, the massacre that follows the fall of Göktipe in, in, in 1881. Um, but uh, that said, the sort of the, the dehumanization of opponents, the infliction of violence on civilians, I mean, these are things that we do see um, in European conflicts in the same period as well. If we look at the Franco-Prussian War, um, if we um, look at um, later on at the um, uh, the wars um, that the British fight um, in Ireland, for instance, which of course is also a colonized territory despite being with, within Europe. Um, and. Um, more broadly, it just seems to me that the oh, – or indeed, yes, that the Russian suppression of the Polish revolt of 1863, which is every bit as brutal as anything that they do in Central Asia. So I'm not convinced that, um, that race, um, you know, which is basically the kind of the, 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 the variable that people who talk about colonial violence are talking about, they're saying that the, it's racial difference that makes it uh, more violent, more horrific, that Europeans will do things to people of other races that they would not do to each other. Um I think I don't think it really holds as a as a consistent rule. Um, um, certainly, if we look at the conquest of Central Asia, um, it's curious. The use of violence is, is actually is curiously inconsistent, um, and I haven't got a I haven't got a complete explanation as to why this might be. Um, as I've mentioned in the in the early stages in the, in the step, it's it's really a sort of common. It, it's a common economy of of, of, of raiding um, uh, violence. If you look at the 1860s, then by and large, what we're looking at are set piece battles and sieges between opposing armies without the infliction of extensive violence on civilian populations. It doesn't really happen at this stage. Um, that shifts quite decisively with the, um, certainly with the Yeoman Massacre, um, whose purpose ostensibly is to destroy a potential source of internal opposition to the heathen Han so that he will become a more reliable partner to the Russians actually there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest its real purpose is to allow some of the troops who took part in that conquest who had not yet seen action uh, to basically sort of taste blood as it were uh, and again get the opportunity to win some medals um, um, and um, uh, what happens in Fergana seems to be quite um, bound up with the personality of, of Mikhail Skobilev. Um Certainly, some of his fellow officers seem to have quite been quite horrified by what he was doing there. Um, though again, it's also it's partly explained by the more prolonged um, nature of the resistance to the Russians in that region. And then finally, Göktepe is, is partly because you know, the Turkmen put up the most the most prolonged and effective resistance to the Russians of any of the Central Asian peoples but also it's because the Russians have been um, humiliated there in 1879 they've been defeated um, and there was a sort of uh, a desire to wipe out that uh, that reverse and once again Skobinev was involved um, I'm not sure I I, I I came I was able to come to a completely satisfactory conclusion about what explains these different patterns uh, because again the, the very last phase of the conquests in the Pamirs is largely um, carried out without violence. Um, And, um, you know, there may be partially um, an explanation for that in that the Russians sort of identified the inhabitants, at least of the Western Pamirs, as sort of Aryan brethren in a sense. Um, And there's an element of racial ideology at play there. But I'm still not convinced that that's a a completely satisfactory explanation. It's, it's It's also got quite a lot to do with the fact that the people People's in this region basically, you know, did actually welcome and encourage um, Russian rule because they saw it as a, they saw it as preferable to the alternative of Bukharan or Afghan um, domination. So the Russians didn't encounter resistance uh, from the local population there. Um, so um, I mean that that's you know that that's perhaps one area where my book um, touches on. Broader debates in imperial history where I suspect some of my colleagues are not going to entirely agree with my conclusions, but at least um, I hope that um, this will have given, you know, the Russian uh, Russian colonial campaigns are generally not well known amongst those who work on the other European empires as mainly for linguistic reasons. Russia basically doesn't get in- tend to get included within the broader historiography of European imperialism. Um, and hopefully, at least they've now got the, they've now got some material to work with, even if they don't agree with my the conclusions that I draw from it.
1: Thank you, and and I kind of want to build on on this theme of of thinking about the Russian conquest in in the kind of comparative imperial framework, in um, raise another issue which um, I found very prevalent, I think, in your footnotes especially, um, but it was clear that that. This was something you wanted to discuss, um, or at least bring up, which was about um, the manuscript collections acquired uh, by the Russian Empire during these campaigns. And so um, throughout throughout these conquests, especially I think in Kokon and Kiva, um, but you might need to correct me on that, um, there was this figure, Alexander Kuhn, who was a R- Russian Orientalist who basically builds a collection of Central Asian manuscripts um, that end up in St. Petersburg, um, hand in hand with these imperial conquests. And what's interesting um, about that is is that we can connect the field of Central Asian history actually back to these collections. Um, these were the collections that Yuri Bregel worked with. Um, so I was just curious um, if you could talk a little bit about um, what this might mean for Central Asian historians or people who study Central Asia, um, and um, why you felt that that was an important part of the, the story to tell.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sakun so is he's another of these figures who's he's he, he's Russian in the sense of being Rasiski, so he is a, obviously a Russian imperial agent, although he was actually um, half German, half Armenian um, uh, in origin. So like a lot of the protagonists in this book, he's uh, he is um, uh, he's not actually an ethnic Russian. Um, and my colleague um, here in Oxford, Adizu Azad, has actually written quite extensively about his his life and career. So Kuhn is what we might call a sort of an embedded Orientalist. Um, you know, he is uh, he's basically dispatched. Uh, and the first the first time his services are called upon is in 1871 when um, the Russians sent a punitive expedition to Shakhrisabz to force it to submit to the Amir of Bukhara, who's now their client. Um, and Kuhn is tasked with collecting manuscripts uh, from the, um, uh, the palaces in Chakrasavs and Kitab uh, of the, the, the Kenneges dynasty, which has been defeated there. Um, and some of these we know are now sitting in the collection of the, um, uh, basically the, the Oriental Institute of the Imperial Academy, what was the Imperial Academy of Sciences in, in St. Petersburg. Um, he's then also um, tasked, given the same task in Heba. Uh, and uh, collects uh, a large uh, group of manuscripts, Um, some of them are chronicles, some of them are poetry, um, some of them are administrative documents and sends them all off to St. Petersburg and they form the core of the um, collection at first uh, P.P. Ivanov and then of course uh, the great Yuri Bregel uh, work on uh, from the 1930s onwards. Uh, and he's he's asked to do the same thing when the Russians invade Kokand in 1875. He's sent to Andijan to to look for manuscripts there. Now the the curious thing is, so the logic behind this, in, and the Russians are quite explicit about this at the time, is you know this is this is a very sort of um, explicit attempt to gather to collect knowledge. Um, uh, The idea is that these manuscripts contain knowledge that will be vital for the Russians to uh, understand how to rule these areas that they are conquering. So, um, you know, it's a sort of textbook example in a way of the the Orientalists as the sort of um, uh, servant of empire, uh, even of the sort of creation of a form of colonial knowledge that can be then used in governance in Bernard Cohn's phrase. Except that, you know, in the end, they don't actually use any of this stuff. Uh, and this, this connects, in fact, with a, a, a an article that my uh, friend and colleague Paolo Sartori has just published on our, you know, we have this idea that, you know, archives and collections of documents are always sort of um, part of this, this arsenal uh, of a technology of power in the hands of colonial rulers. But of course, actually, archives are often places where things are just sent to be forgotten. You know, they get, they get shoved away on a shelf somewhere and then nobody looks at them again. Uh, and that's actually what happened to this material. Um, so um, you know the, the stuff that Kuhn took from Heber was basically not looked at for sixty years, and when it was, it was in the very different context of the Soviet period and for very different purposes than that which um, for which it had originally been collected. Uh, the other thing that happened in the Soviet period was that ultimately these collections were, were basically sent back uh, to Tashkent. So um, with some exceptions, so I think some of the material some of the manuscripts. Uh, um, that Kuhn found in Chakrasab are still in St. Petersburg. But the, the archive of the Khans of Heva, so-called, was uh, removed bodily from St. Petersburg and sent to Tashkent in the 1960s um, and sits now in the the, the state archives in Tashkent. Um, and, and there's been, been a, a lot of very interesting work done on them quite recently. Uh, and the same goes, I think, for the material from, from Kokand. Um, but it never. So that's the thing, you know. It it, it, it would be quite easy to sort of s- spin a narrative uh, of um, how this 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 material sort of, you know, reinforced the structures of colonial governance and 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 so on. But actually, it, it just didn't get used. Um, and this, I think, is is a more common phenomenon than we realise. There's some um, uh, here in Oxford. We have an extraordinary sort of legacy of um, uh, manuscripts. Um, in Persian, in Chagatai, um, uh, in, um, in some cases also in, in Hindi and Urdu, um, which are a legacy, basically, British rule in the subcontinent. Um, uh, and also, also it's some of the collections are also connected with British diplomatic missions in, in, in Iran or in Persia and so on. And what's, in a way, a little embarrassing is that much of this material... Has, basically not really being used. It has been sitting in the Bodleian Library in some cases, you know, for, 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 for hundreds of years um, and has very rarely been looked at because um, the, uh, um, you know, the appetite for sort of um, acquiring this material was not matched by an appetite for, you know, training or employing people who are actually capable of reading it. <laughs> so, um, um, I think that is now finally starting to be corrected. But uh, um, but yes, in the in the Central Asian case, it's it's clear that actually the you know Kun's work, in a sense, was was never really sort of made use of in the way that that von Kaufmann, his his patron, had had intended.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, Dr. Morrison, um, this is yeah. I I just wanted to thank you again for sitting and, and talking about your book. Um, I hope we have done it a little bit of justice and and hit some of the main points. Of course, listeners, um, will want to, uh, dive further into the details and and get a copy of the book. Um, before we leave, I was, I kind of wanted to give you the opportunity, um, to share any other major points you wanted to touch on, or just to share briefly what you, what you hope readers will get from, um, from reading your book. Mm in a broad sense.
2: Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I won't pretend that the, the book is that easy a read, as you probably know. I mean, waded through it. It, it, it wasn't written for a, for a popular audience. I felt that this was a topic that had been so neglected in English and, and so misrepresented that, you know, a, a, a really sort of chunky monograph that, that tried to straighten out, um, um, you know, a lot of these misconceptions was needed. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I hope that Ultimately, it is, it is reasonably readable. I mean, the, the you know, I'm not a, I, I would be the first to admit, you know, as a historian, I'm not a great, I don't have a great deal of truck um, with um, uh, theoretical approaches, um, uh, in particular um, with postmodern approaches, which I really see as a kind of negation of, of what the historical discipline is, is all about. Um, you know, so my, my goals in the book were, as far as I could see it, you know, really quite, Straightforward. It was um, um, I was trying to tell a very very complex story uh, on the basis of the very of the best and most detailed and most extensive sources that I could I could dig out. Um, I'm not claiming that I've got everything right, um, but I'm hoping that the book will be um, a good sort of starting point for. Um, for further debates, maybe about you know points of fact and interpretation. Um, for instance, when it comes to the Russian, the motivations of the Russian conquest. You know, maybe um, uh, we will end up returning to the question of economic motivations at some point, with you know, with with more research being done. But also, I think there are a whole host of different sort of lenses or themes through which you could see this. You know, I think really important kind of world historical um, uh, process. I'd say it's a process, and not an event um which you could examine um, um, you know in a sense once if if we've now got the facts straight which I hope I hope the book has gone some way to doing um those who are interested for instance in the the impact of Central Asia on uh, Russian culture uh, in literature in music um, in art um, would I think sort of find a lot of material that's, that's of importance there you know even people say perhaps working on 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 you know something that might seem as unconnected to this topic as the as the history of gender. I think there are actually some quite there's some quite interesting models of sort of Russian military masculinity on display in this book, which I have not you know I have not attempted to analyse because it's not really my my sort of field or area. But, I, but possibly other people might be interested in that. So I think you know I'm hoping that the the, the book will will actually sort of you know, not just um, not just be seen as a, a sort of uh, um, hopefully putting to bed certain sort of canards and shibboleths in in central asian history but will be the a, fr- a fruitful sort of starting point for um uh, uh, for others who are interested in this period but perhaps you know will take a less a less a, a, a less sort of relentlessly um, um, material approach than, than me <laughs> yeah thank
1: you thank you for sharing that and and i do agree i i think this um you know, one thing that we can get from this book is that it opened, it it kind of resets some of the narratives and, and um, has provided room for future research to build build off of it. So, um, you know, that's a great contribution. Um, and Dr. Morrison, before we go, um, I also wanted to give you the opportunity to share any new projects that you might be working on. And um, something else is, you know, we we've spent the last hour talking about your book. But I'm curious if if there are any other books that you've read recently that you would recommend to to our listeners. Sure. So I mean, having
2: written two fairly weighty monographs, and this one took me ten years to write, and um, um, I'm I'm now sort of tempted by the idea of trying to write something um, a bit more accessible for a broader audience. Um, and um, my I, my plan, at least, um, is to. Try to write a more general history of Russian expansion in Asia from the 18th to the early 20th century. So looking not just at the Central Asian frontier, but um, at the Caucasus, at relations with the Ottoman Empire and Persia, at uh, Russian expansion um, in the Far East and the Russo-Japanese War, uh, and at the the sort of progress of um, to some perhaps also perhaps extending to sort of looking at the Russian Civil War uh, in these regions as well. Um, but written more from uh you know making use of existing historiography and and published sources um, and seeking to provide a kind of broader um, overview um you know (laughs) i'd already sort of thought of doing this even before the current pandemic um hit and now now that it looks as if it's going to be quite difficult to sort of um, travel to do um archival research for, for some considerable time um I'm thinking that yes, a library-based project that I can um, uh, do more from from Oxford might be sensible at this point. Um, so that's 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 a major thing I'm sort of thinking. I mean, I have some other other sort of ideas in the pipeline uh, that would take a lot longer to complete. Uh, I want to write a a biography of General Kuropatkin, who figures quite prominently in this book, but actually plays a, a really important role in um, late Imperial Russia more broadly as, as war minister, as, as commander in chief in the Far East during the Russian-Japanese War. Um, uh, so that's a, that's a, a, another longer term um, project. And as for reading um, reading recommendations, uh, well, there's... there's um, I, I've often been a bit sort of Certainly, if we're looking at historiography in English, I've often been a bit frustrated at the relentless focus on the Soviet period um, amongst um, Western-trained historians. There's this fascination with the Soviet experiment that means, I think, czarist Russia gets a, <laughs> a little bit neglected sometimes. Um, I've been very excited to read uh, Gregory Afinoganov's um, recent book on um, basically on Russian intelligence work in Chi- and spying in China along the Chinese frontier. I think that's, that's very... Uh, really interesting and, uh, and innovative um, and um, um, I think of you know of other um, uh, I think there's also been some really fine work um, produced um, on the experience of the Russian Empire in the first world war um, because of the recent um, anniversaries basically the, the, in the in the Russia's great war and revolution series which is a I think, fantastic monument of, of what you can do um, with uh, um you know sort of goodwill and um, collaboration between scholars even when there isn't a great deal of funding um, um, behind it um also studies like for instance Josh Sanborn's book um, um Imperial Apocalypse about the the collapse of the, the Russian Empire in the First World War um that's an area where i think we we we've, we've really sort of come on by by leaps and bounds um in recent years as as, as, as well um and yes i mean looking specifically at uh, at central asia um I'm very excited, I'll be very excited to see um, Adib Khalid's uh, new history that's going to be coming out um, uh, in May, I think, uh, with, with Princeton, which will give us something that we've been wanting for a long time, which is I think a, a sort of a general history of Central Asia from the 18th to the 20th centuries that we can actually, we can safely give to students. Um, and of course, um, yeah, your your own uh, Professor Scott Levi's um, um, recent book on the Bukharan crisis, which um, uh, you know, I, I have um, um, read at various stages of its development, but which is um, really sort of, it's helping to kind of, if you like, deprovincialize Central Asian history in a big way. I think it's, it's integrating it into the, the broader historiography that we now have on um, early modern, the connectedness of the early modern world. Um, it's a book that also, and this, this I think is this I think is is important, important consideration. It's another it's another book that you can safely give to undergraduate students, and which is not going to scare them off the idea of doing Central Asian history because it's very it's very accessible and very well written. So those are, those are some of the things that um, I've been reading recently that I've been keen on.
1: Dr. Morrison, thanks uh, thanks for those recommendations and thanks for coming on the show and, and talking about your new book. Not at all.